Good morning. All right. The Lord loves husbands and wives. Let's go get donuts. That's all I got for you. <laughs> at least you can count on when Bob does the announcements to get we get two messages that morning. Albeit his part is false teaching half the time, but that's that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Hey, you know, you can't, you can't, you, what do they say? You can't, uh, you can't muzzle the ox while he's treading grain, right? There you go. You just, you just, you, this is where he belongs, man. This is where Bob belongs. So good. Good morning. Um, again, good morning, uh, everyone out there. Good morning, Pastor Papras and, uh, and our, our, our fellow believers and sisters and brothers in Tanzania. Um, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get on with this. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Uh, I pray you speak through me this morning, Holy Spirit. Guide my heart. Open our ears uh, and our hearts to hear what you have. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray you just wipe away all the historical misconceptions and woundings that have been uh, attached to this topic and that you help us to hear uh, your truth and see you in, uh, in a new um, and beautiful way this morning. Um, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Well, we got a lot of, a lot of good stuff to get into this morning. Um, if you um, writing this message, I, just, I'm, I feel like I want to say, hello, my name is Mike, because I just want to feel like the Holy, I just need the Holy Spirit to speak through me this morning, like a microphone, so... Um, I feel like that's the thing. I spent about 14 hours writing this message and then read it to my wife and she went, yeah, I lost you halfway through. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so then I rewrote it. <laughs> so um, after spending my Holy Spirit. So I really, I feel like it's going to be a really um, beautiful thing. It's, we'll talk about the wisdom of wives um, <laughs> and the beauty of that. Um, but um, we got a lot of good stuff to get through this morning. So Let's jump in. If you, if you weren't here last week, I'm going to just ask you to go back and listen to that message before you pass judgment on anything I say here this morning. You know, there was a reason I did this topic over two weeks, um, and the entire last week was really the context of how God has presented himself as a spouse throughout uh, human history. So I'll just do a quick recap on that, and then we'll jump in. Uh, before I do that, Let's read our passage this morning. This is Ephesians five twenty-one to 33. Keep submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So last week I started by saying that the Bible is fundamentally the story of God's intention for and relationship with humanity. Right? The Bible is not an academic work. It's not a systematic theology textbook, and God is not a professor. Right? We, talked, we spent the entire message talking about the deep context of how God presents himself as husband from the beginning before marriage. That marriage was given to Adam and Eve because God intended the marriage of Christ to his bride from before the beginning. And that this is a concept that we've really lost sight of, opting to see God as father more often than not. Uh, And I just want to say, listen, I know that this idea can be a bit uncomfortable for some people, especially men, right? No one is asking you to start praying, husband God, will you please? Like, that's not what I'm saying, right? You're totally fine addressing God as father. Because we need to remember, God is all these things, isn't he? Right? Prophet, priest, king, lord, lover, warrior, judge. And the best of any other human title that you can come up with. Right? He is husband, father, brother, and frankly, mother, daughter, sister. Right? There is no aspect of human relationship that is not captured in God. God is wisdom, and wisdom is personified as a woman in Proverbs. God represents himself in the masculine because of this very model of marriage, not because he has a Y chromosome, right? God is spirit, and he certainly isn't capable of creating something in a human form that doesn't, that's beyond him. Does that make sense? See, the bigger point is to shift your thinking from seeing God only as father dealing with children to a partner that wants a level of intimacy with you that is echoed here in earth, on earth in marriage. Right? We as the bride of Christ are a partner in his work just like husbands and wives are meant to operate as equal partners with distinct assignments. Right? And this is also why this message is important and applicable for everyone here, not just people who are married. If you're single, divorced, still in your youth, you're still a partner for God in the work of his kingdom here on earth. You can walk in maturity with God at any age. And indeed, that's what the Holy Spirit calls us to do. So if you're single, listen. God needs you to focus on knowing him as partner first, regardless of your desire to be married. If you can do that, any marriage you will have will benefit. And be careful not to idolize marriage. If you think being married will make you whole or fill you up, then listen closely to what I'm going to say this morning. No human spouse is capable of providing that for you. And to expect them expect that from them is not only a problem, it's actually idolatry, right? God alone can fill you in that manner and, and deserves that place in your life. If you can't get it from him, you're certainly not going to get it from a human spouse. 
And listen, if you're divorced, or maybe you've experienced abuse in a marriage, God can use this idea actually to work healing in your heart if you let him. Right? Let him meet you in a place where you were wounded by a human spouse. Let him speak into that place where you may see failure in your life and let him show you the truth of his love in a new and profound way. So as we dive into this here, right, the context here is for everyone. We spoke last week about how much context matters if we're to properly understand the content of any passage of scripture, let alone a hot button issue like this one. And we talked about the fact that this is a hot button issue because the enemy fully recognizes God's intention for marriage and has been working to destroy it since it was established. With all that in mind, okay, let me tell you where we're headed this morning. A quick search of christianbooks.com turns up 10,040 books on Christian marriage. Just Christian marriage, right? Clearly a lot of people have a lot to say on this topic. There is far too much here for me to deal with, even spreading it over two weeks like this. Many of the things that I would love to include this morning would only actually serve to muddy the waters and cause confusion. Right, the often misused teachings in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Corinthians 11 and Peter and Titus and 1 Timothy that talk about sexual relations in marriage and head coverings and behavior of women in the church, there's just too much to cover there. Right, I want to make this one point about all that. We have an ability to look into the context of those passages these days like we never have before because of our access to information. Right, I'm not talking about coming up with new and progressive theologies about them. I'm talking about filling in the context around those passages. 20 to 30 years ago, if you wanted to garner the information on the true context of those passages, you'd have to be a full-time scholar. You'd have to read 100-plus books across theology, history, archaeology, and sociology. You didn't have to filter and distill all the information from those books and hope you hit the right ones to begin with. And then you had to publish your own work and somehow get that into the hands of other people. Now I open my browser and I type, Culture of Ephesus in the first century. Right? And I have more scholarly works than I can even read. Right? I have a Greek, uh, English, any interlinear uh, version of the scripture online to me at my fingertips, which would have taken five or six big books to keep sorting back and through to get the same information. Right? And I know because I have those books. <laughs> and it was super annoying to try to do that. Right? Bob knows that. Right? Let me, so simply, I just want to say this. There's so much in those passages so much more than the way they've been framed in recent generations. I'm just going to put it like that. Okay, I've done a deep dive into each of those things. Um, And if you wanted to have coffee and discuss them sometime, I'm happy to talk about them. But what I'm going to focus on this morning is one idea. And And I can sum it up in the word partnership. Okay. If you keep that word in mind, everything else this morning around the idea of headship and submission is going to make sense. So first of all, let's remember the immediate context of the rest of Paul's letter to the Ephesians here. Paul has spoken repeatedly in the first part of the book about coming to maturity and in the fullness of Christ. Anything he's saying now can be seen as an application of those things. 
Second, Paul in this chapter just got through saying we should be imitators of God and walk in love. That we should let everything in our life, past and present, become light. That we should make the most of every opportunity. That we should sing to one another and we should continue to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now that he's through all that, Paul says, enough of all that, let's talk about the dominating hierarchy of marriage and subjugating women in the name of God, right? Okay, clearly not, right? This entire passage is a life-giving extension of everything Paul has already said. So here are four basic principles that I want to lay out to frame the rest of this message, then we'll expand on each one. Principle one, your marriage is either trending up or trending down, there is no staying the same. Somewhere there's a slide for this. <laughs> you're, listen, your marriage is a dance between two partners. Okay? You're either getting better at the dance or you're just getting better at stepping on each other's toes. Right? I'm not talking about a busy season as the kids go back to school or that stressful time when you were changing jobs. Right? I'm talking about the trajectory of your marriage over a longer term. Just like this church is either growing closer to God and moving closer to his purposes or moving closer to our own desires and purposes, you're either in a pattern of building each other up in your marriage or a pattern of tearing each other down. There really is no in-between in the long term. I heard a divorce lawyer actually say it this way. People get divorced like they go bankrupt. A little at a time, and then all at once. Right? Are you bearing with all the little things of a bad pattern that build up little by little by little until things are just going to implode? Right? If so, it's time to change that. It's time to change the trajectory. Principle two. There is no ideal picture of marriage. Okay? And some of you might feel a rub on that, but listen to me. There are some marriages where the husband works full-time and the wife cares for the house of the children, the house and the children, and that works. I know marriages where the husband stays home with the, you know, and takes care of the kids and is a house dad, and the, and the wife works full-time, and that works. I know marriages where both spouses work and they, and they share the family duties, and that works. There is no definitive picture of marriage laid out in Scripture Despite what the culture has tried to say, it should be. God displays himself through different marriages in different ways, just as he does with different people in different ways. And the important thing is that in every way, your marriage is reflecting the larger truths of Christ and the church to the world around you, regardless of what the functional day-to-day looks like. Principle three. Making changes to your marriage to bring it closer to Jesus' design is always worth it. I will repeat something I've set up here many times before. Everything in this book is absolutely life-giving. Making the effort to conform your life and your marriage to God's design is always worth the work it takes to get there. It bears fruit that is peaceful, beautiful, better for you, your spouse, and your family. Okay, it's no mystery that marriage is hard. God often uses our spouse to weed out the broken and rebellious parts of our own soul. 
right? As one author put it, marriage is more about making you holy than it is making you happy, right? But ultimately, the holier you are, I think the more happier you're prone to be. Principle four, marriage is your primary ministry. If you're married, your marriage is the primary way that you impact a future generation, that you, it's your primary witness to the world and your primary avenue to grow closer to God. Kelly reminded me of something she learned years ago in a Bible study on marriage. The author said, aside from all the other ministry you might do, if you do marriage well, you will get to heaven and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Your marriage can be such an effective ministry to your spouse, your children, and the world around you that God puts that kind of priority on it, and so should you. So to expand on this, let's get some vocabulary clear first, okay? If you've been around the Christian church and you're familiar with terms around marriage, you've probably heard the terms complementarian and egalitarian, okay? If you're familiar with those terms, I'm going to ask you just to set aside those ideas this morning and listen with open ears. I'm not going to use either of those terms because to me they're very loaded ideas. And honestly, I think they represent the ends of the spectrum. But the things we'll talk about today will pull ideas from both of those camps because I don't think either one of those perspectives gets everything correct. As, I, as is common, I think, when we start to label things and categorize things, the actual truth lies somewhere in the, in the middle. The terms I will use to define, <clears throat> will use and define this morning are headship and submission, because those are the ones that show up directly in the text. And again, if you're familiar with those terms and they're loaded to you, just put those aside as well, Okay. They've often been misused and they need to be unwound a little bit as well. So as I define each of these things, right, keep in mind everything we talked about last week and that all of this reflects greater spiritual truths about who God is and that these are not arbitrary boundaries imposed on each partner. So what is headship? Okay, I've got this kind of technical definition here. I'm gonna define headship as this. The specific assignment in marriage given to men by God that makes them responsible for the outcomes of their marriage as a specific reflection of Christ's responsibility for the church. Okay, so to focus in there, this is a specific assignment given by God to men that makes them responsible for the outcome of their marriage. And this is captured in verses 25 to 27, right? Paul says... Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with, of the, with the word, that he might present the church to himself with splendor, spot, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's headship over the church is his leadership that defines the outcome of the church. We'll get into more of what that looks like for husbands a little later. Okay, so what's the other side? Submission, right? Let's define submission. The specific assignment in marriage given to women by God to respect the gravity of the assignment and responsibility God gave men in marriage 
as a specific reflection of the church's assignment to follow and submit to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Okay, again, to focus in, a specific assignment given to women by God to reflect the church's respect for Christ and his leadership. And to be clear right up front, this is a willful choice to submit, not an involuntary subjugation of one spouse over another. Right? That's called slavery, right? not marriage. Right? Remember, Paul starts by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, a woman choosing to honor and submit to her husband because of the, the role God gave him or the assignment God gave him is done for the same reason, out of reverence for Christ, not reverence for her husband. And again, more on how that looks later. So I'm going to... Um, I'm going to leave these up on the screen for a minute here. Um, so we can go through them as we... No, there it is. <laughs> so we can go ref, refer to them back as we go. So to flesh this out, let's remember the effects of Christ's work here on earth to unwind the curse we spoke about last week. You'll remember from last week that the curse was laid on women, right, that would be a desire for them to have the place of their husband and, in play, and on the flip side that, women, that men would rule over women. We can clearly see this played out, right, in the violent patriarchal structures of history. It's not hard to identify. But unwinding the curse in marriage looks like this. We are restored to a place where men and women are, and this is a key phrase here, equal partners with distinct assignments. A lot of times we'll hear that men and women have distinct roles in marriage. And as I kept thinking about this, I decided to just use the word assignment instead. And the reason being that I think roles isn't necessarily bad, but I think it, 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 it conjures this idea that you have that role and I have this role and there isn't very much overlap. On the contrary, I think Scripture shows us that God's original design for men and women was to share the role of ruling and subduing God's creation as his partners and, and having specific assignments within that shared role. They are to rule and subdue together in partnership, interchangeable in many aspects and not in others. So remember, this all has to accurately reflect the relationship between Christ and the church or it just isn't correct. In this case, we see that Christ described himself and the church as being one. We operate in his authority, and he gave us uh, work to do that he has delegated to us. When we studied Mark, right? The end of Mark talks about the beginning of the church in Mark 16. And Mark says this, the disciples went out, and the Lord worked with them to confirm their message. But it doesn't say it the other way around. It doesn't say that they worked with the Lord to spread his message, the idea of a common role with distinct assignments is why there's no ideal image of marriage in the context of redeemed partners. See, each of us are lifted above the curse, individually under the authority of Christ and responsible for their own assignment. 
Here's an example very close to home. If Bob and I were the type of men that believed that men had the role to be the primary provider for the family, that the role of our wife was to care for the home and family in support of our separate role, neither of us would be pastors here. Right? It was our, in both of our lives, it was our wives' ability to earn a, a strong income that allowed us to step out and away from our income and enter ministry, which, by the way, doesn't pay very well. <laughs> the financial role of provider is interchangeable between a husband and wife, as needed. However, Bob and I both still maintain our specific assignment of headship in our marriage without the role of primary financial provider. Make sense? I'm incredibly thankful for my wife's ability to earn and her willingness to step into that role to allow me to be here. Right? Indeed, to not allow her to use the amazing gifts of medicine that God gave her would mean that neither of us were functioning in our design from God. Am I to believe that God gave her these incredible gifts and skills just to frustrate her and her inability to use them? See, to reinforce this idea, let's interject some more context around the apostles' teachings on marriage, Kate. It's funny to me, honestly, sometimes I read this, that it's funny to me that these rules seem so oppressive in our modern culture, right? Because in the first century, these ideas were wildly countercultural and even progressive. Paul and Peter's teachings on these issues bucked the status quo for both Rome and Ephesus. Right? In Roman culture, men had absolute authority over the lives of their wives. The patriarchal structure was such that women were actually only considered full Roman citizens through their husband or their father. Without a man, they could not have full citizenship and had very few rights. In Ephesus, almost the opposite was true. With the dominance of the cult of Artemis and the temple of Artemis and Artemis worship there, women held an incredibly high place in, this, in the culture of Ephesus, and it was almost matriarchal. So for Paul to say to the Ephesians that women should submit to their husbands and that men should love their wives like Christ, who laid down all of his rights and died an unjust death for his bride, that was wildly countercultural. But it was only possible because of the redeemed nature of Christians to live above the curse. But that curse still runs through our sinful flesh, and the enemy uses that to tempt us back to domination and manipulation. This is why the expression of godly marriage is part and parcel with living a mature life in Christ. Which brings us back to principle one. Our redeemed person in Christ is, is capable of living out a marriage that is moving in an upward pattern as we build each other up in Christ. But our flesh is still capable of being enticed by the enemy to reinstate the curse in a downward pattern towards selfishness and a focus on our own needs. So what does this all look like in the day-to-day -day life of a husband and wife? Well, like I said earlier, 
excuse me. There is no ideal picture for the day-to-day functioning of a godly marriage. So here are some overarching ideas, right, that can apply to all marriages to reflect the relationship of Christ and his bride. One, focus on yourself and your side of the equation. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter lays out a list of character traits that should be growing in a, in a Christian's life. Excuse me. Then he says this. This is 2 Peter 1, 8 to 9. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting they have been cleansed from their past sins. So what does that look like in marriage? It means you remember that you're prone to want to return to the way of the curse and that once you start focusing on how your spouse is not living up to their end, you've lost the right perspective. See, Paul does not say, wives, see to it that your husbands love you like Christ and husbands, make sure your wife is submitting to you. Right? He puts the onus on the individual. You love your wives like Christ loved the church. You submit to your husband. Your role is to focus on your part of God's call. Practically, in marriage, I think one way that can look is this. Husbands, to love your wives like Christ in headship means that when there's a problem, you move first toward your wife. You are the first to apologize, whether you're wrong or not. You are the first to admit your failure and your shortcomings in a situation, and you are the first to seek peace and reconciliation. Essentially, you emulate the reality that Christ moved toward us while we were still far away from him. He loved us first, and he gave, us, he gave up everything to bring us back to him, and he continues to do that every day. See, this rails against the ego of a man. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But that's the point. That ego is your number one doorway to the curse. Philippians 2 makes it very clear that Christ emptied himself of all his rights and privileges as almighty God to come to us. The least you can do, the least, literally, is set aside your personal frustrations to build up your marriage. And after almost 25 years of marriage, I can tell you there's never a time when the blame lies solely on one spouse. So men, figure out your part and make the first move. Unmarried men, listen, you have every ability to do the same thing in your relationships throughout your life. You can reflect the character of Christ to move first in reconciliation, whether it's in friendship, at work, or in service to your community. The stubborn ability of men to stand their ground and to not want to be wrong is a reflection of a fallen world and the curse, and it sets the pattern of your character in the wrong direction. For instance, Watch this clip. Come on. Don't you worry. I'm going to talk to him. 
My dad is so stubborn. What he says goes. Oh, the man is the head of the house. Let me tell you something, Tula. The man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head <laughs> any way she wants. <laughs> right? There you go. Thank you, my big fat Greek wedding. There it is. Right? So we chuckle at that. Because there's a lot of relationships that function that way, aren't there? But see, the message there is the truth of the curse. A man's rule over his family has to be manipulated by his wife's power if there's going to be any equity in the relationship. It's funny. It's not biblical. Right? Wives, in the same way... Submitting to your husband in a situation like this is to realize that he's only human. And if he takes that first step to move toward you and come in humility, that this is a chance for you to respect that move, to be thankful that you have a husband that pursues godliness, and to communicate him with him in grace and kindness. Don't take that opportunity to use his humility against him and embrace your side of the curse. Rather, take the opportunity to focus on yourself in the same way, remembering how much Christ has forgiven you. And remember this important point. In the times that he doesn't make the first move or he doesn't seem worthy of respect, God calls you to honor your husband because of the responsibility God gave him. Not because he's always worthy of that respect. You submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, not out of reverence for each other. Which brings us to the next practical point. Marriage is not a 50-50 agreement. Marriage is a 100-100 situation. It is the constant work of giving all of yourself to your spouse. It's very hard to be angry with someone that is sacrificially giving you all of themselves. In fact, if you both have the Holy Spirit, it will more often than not stir your heart to give yourself back to your spouse. Focusing on your side of the sacrificial covenant and leaning, I'm sorry, learning to give yourself to your spouse because of who Christ is and not to get your own needs met is a pattern that will inevitably lead you both upward. On the contrary, trying to focus on getting your needs met will inevitably lead your spouse to do the same thing, pulling each of you into this defensive struggle for who can take more out of the relationship. Right? This is the way of the world. Right? That's how the world talks about marriage and pretty much every relationship, isn't it? You get yours, and if you're not getting yours, then get out. This selfishness is destroying our culture on every front, and it's destroying the church. Too many Christians have bought into this cultural ideal that we're supposed to focus on our personal happiness and getting our needs met, which is why the failure rate of marriages in the church is the same or worse than the world around us. It is a sign of widespread lack of maturity in Christ, an acceptance of lies that don't work and a failure that makes people question the very essence of the message of Jesus Christ. And it's time to change that, frankly. 
See, Jesus didn't give his life for us so we could act like spoiled children who are ta- will take our ball and go home if we don't get our way. See, one major way we can begin to change the pattern is to remember what it actually looks like to be a godly man or godly woman. Men and women are different, and I think I can safely assert that here. As an example, my nephew and I randomly started trading Chuck Norris jokes throughout the day a couple weeks ago. You guys know what I mean by that, right? They celebrate the fact that Chuck Norris is the toughest man to ever walk the earth, ever, right? Like, like this. Chuck Norris has a bearskin rug. The bear isn't dead, it's just too afraid to move. <laughs> Guns sleep with Chuck Norris under their pillow. <laughs> when Chuck Norris turned 18, his parents moved out. <laughs> and my personal favorite, Chuck Norris doesn't read books, he just stares them down until he gets the information he wants. <laughs> Chuck, do you approve? Okay, good. Excellent, good. <laughs> Okay, to be fair, my wife hates those jokes. She's over here shaking her head. <laughs> but that's the point, right? Funny or not, we don't mind the idea, especially as men, of a man who is the pinnacle of strength and toughness. Right? One of those things that gives Chuck Norris this reputation is that he always played the good guy. Right? So he always won. What better way to get a reputation of being undefeatable than to always win while fighting on the noble side of good? And the funny thing is I couldn't find a feminine equivalent for Chuck Norris jokes. (laughs) Let's not go there. (laughs) See, and that's one of the main ways that men and women differed. As a broad stroke, men are largely designed to protect and defend. As a broad stroke, women are largely largely designed to nurture and train. Right, but this is why the world wants to look at headship as authority. We all need a Chuck Norris in our lives when an evil supervillain has taken our child hostage or plans to blow up the world. But who wants that same guy to come home every night looking for a fight to win? Right? I'll say more on that later, but men, if your heroes are all like Chuck Norris, you're not grounded in a very good spot to understand proper headship. See, the word that we translate head in Ephesians is the Greek word kephale. This is not the Greek word exousia, which means authority. Besides the fact that the word kephale means your literal head, figuratively it has the connotation of a cornerstone on a building. That cornerstone sets the course for all the following construction. If the cornerstone is faulty, the building will follow a faulty course. If the cornerstone is true, then the building will be properly constructed. In the same way, men, your headship is not to be seen as authority or power over your wife, but rather that you are like a cornerstone. Your character, your pursuit of God, your willingness to emulate Christ will define the direction and outcome of your family and marriage. God will hold you accountable for letting him form you into a true and square cornerstone that sets a right direction. Headship is not about men being in charge of women. It is about them being responsible and setting a direction, 
not for making every decision about where to live and, and where to work and how to raise the kids and what car to buy and what to have for dinner. But you can find plenty of people that will say that's exactly what it means. And why is this true? Because once again, there is no sense in which Jesus treats us that way. He loves us in a way that wants to give us all good things. Was there anything you wouldn't do for your spouse-to-be when you were dating? Right? Get back to that place. It reflects the heart of God to you as well. So let me be blunt for a, for a minute here. We have a culture of manhood, even in the church, that has lost its weight. I mean, if your heroes are Teddy Roosevelt and John Wayne, you have the wrong view of manhood. There are a lot of good things that have come out of the men's movement in the church for the past 20 years, but there are some things that miss the mark. See, Jesus was not a cigar-smoking, whiskey-drinking, motorcycle-riding, gun-strapped, deadlifting, ready-to-fight man. He didn't require those around him to go rock-climbing and four-wheeling and have arm-wrestling contests. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things on their own. Ask Josh Wong, I can beat him in arm-wrestling. Old man strength's a thing, man. It's a thing. Right? There's nothing wrong with any of those things individually. But if that's where you put your identity as a man, you're woefully off base. Okay? Let me say it this way. You can go to the gym five days a week and lift all you want. But when was the last time you spent an hour lifting up your family and friends and coworkers in prayer? You can rattle off all the latest stats on your fantasy team. But when was the last time you memorized even a single verse out of the word of God that says, that you say guides your life. You can have your concealed carry and walk around ready to fight and defend someone if you have to. But do you have the first clue how to do spiritual warfare? See, if your resistance to me talking about God as spouse is that being intimate with God on that level threatens your sense of being a man, then you need to recalibrate what it means to be a man. Because in all likelihood, if you can't be that intimate with the God that created you, you probably can't be that intimate with your wife. And that means you're leaving her with an empty spot in your marriage, and you're leaving a lot on the table in your relationship. All right, so why so much focus on men? Well, remember, Paul commits twice as many verses to men in this passage as he does to women. But let's shift our focus to women for a few minutes. In understanding what it means to be a godly woman, I want to fill in some really beautiful and unique aspects of a woman that I promised I would from last week. Again, I could go deeply into each one of these and how it reflects the church, but for now I just want you to hear from the perspective of how amazing God's design for a woman is. Let's go back to Genesis, right? God puts the man in the garden, Adam names all the animals, and then he says, but there was no helper was found for Adam. So God makes him a helper, right? And the word for helper there means helper. That's what it means, right? And here's where everyone usually puckers up. What do you mean helper? Like my role as a woman is just to follow my man around helping him? No, it's not at all what I mean. 
Right? Let's, let's consider these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 33, 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 75. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. Psalm 121, 1 to 2. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Each of those verses uses the same word for help as in Genesis, and they speak of God himself. Right? See, helper does not mean servant, slave, or barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen homemaker. Right? That's not what scripture says about who a woman is designed to be. Right? Here's what he does say. Consider this. What is the most beautiful thing in all of creation? The only thing not made from dust. Hint, a lot of you are sitting in this room right now. A woman, if you've never considered this, is the pinnacle of creation. The last thing created and the only thing not created from the earth. Women, you need to understand this because it's part of your power as a woman. You hold a unique place in the created order. And there are implications there for both your inner and outer beauty and the way you should treat it. And I want to be really careful here not to make it sound like I'm reducing the value or power of a woman to her physical beauty. But you need to understand that this is part of why the enemy seeks to pervert and objectify the sexuality of women throughout history. He knows the divine beauty uniquely expressed in the body of every woman. And he seeks to subvert it the same way he seeks to subvert the church. See, whether it's jewels or art or any other precious thing, we seek to protect and honor things of great beauty and value. Right? And remember, this is not just happenstance. This was all designed from the beginning as a reflection of greater spiritual truths. God protects the beauty and purity of his church because of how he values her. And men and women alike should protect and honor the beauty and purity of women in our lives. Another aspect that reflects this is the fact that women reflect different aspects of the character of God than men do. Right, we see this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs was written as instructions to a young man on how to be wise and live well. In the opening chapters, he's quickly introduced to wisdom personified as a woman. Are men generally designed to protect and fight and lead? Yeah. But without the wisdom and partnership of a woman, they often look more like barbarians wandering the hillside right, than kings leading an army. Proverbs 3 13 to 19 says this, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honored. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths lead to peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. You see the flow there? Wisdom is a woman. Engage with her, and you will be blessed. Immediately followed by, the Lord established the earth by wisdom. 
See, wisdom belongs to the Lord inherently, but it does not belong inherently to a man. A man finds wisdom in the heart of, and partnership of a woman. Proverbs is also clear, however, to contrast lady wisdom with lady folly, the opposite of the wise helper who leads the man astray and into the grave. See, women, you reflect God in a way men cannot, and it's up to you to function from a place of wisdom. This is your part in coming to maturity. To exercise the patience, discernment, and intimacy with God that will allow you to build an upward pattern in your marriage. Unmarried women, this character of wisdom is absolutely something you can learn and reflect throughout every area of your life. A husband humbly relies on his wife for her wisdom and partnership, keeping in mind that he is prone to dominate from his flesh. And she humbly respects her husband, knowing that her flesh wants to push him aside and probably could. So I heard it put this way in a podcast. If a husband doesn't see his wife as a helper, then she becomes an object for his fulfillment. And a wife doesn't, if a wife doesn't see her husband as the head, then he becomes a tyrant to be opposed. Okay, real quick, what happens if one of you is on board with this, these ideas and the other's not? Right, what happens when a husband seeks humility and his wife's response is to denigrate him? Or a wife seeks to submit to her husband and he takes the opportunity to dominate her and the family? First, pray. Right, this is your first line of defense and offense when it comes to seeing your spouse changed. It keeps you grounded in the proper source of power and enables the Holy Spirit to do his work. Two, act. Neither submitting for a wife nor serving sacrificially for a husband means being a doormat or letting yourself be abused. Conflict is part of marriage because it's the part that exposes our own brokenness. And sooner or later, we realize we have to deal with our brokenness. The key is to do conflict well, not in a way that drives a further wedge between you. Three, get counseled, right? Seek out a pastor, a wise married friend, professional counselor, right? Great resources to find support and wisdom in a difficult situation. So as we wrap this up, let's revisit this question. Why do we do all of this? What is the ultimate purpose behind all of this? One, to know God as he revealed himself to us. Marriage presents a unique opportunity to understand the way God sees us. If you saw a husband berating his wife in public, would you think he was a good husband? What if you saw a husband say to his wife, you're just a wretched pain, why don't you get your act together? Did you ever think that that was a good model for marriage? But how many of us sit at home and think that that's what God is saying to us because we're not spiritual enough or we're not doing well enough or we're not meeting some standard? Right, to see God as a lover and a husband is to understand that he never talks to you that way. In the same way that you'd be like, that's ridiculous, It's a ridiculous lie from the enemy to assume God speaks to you that way. That's not who he is. You are a beautiful, adorned bride loved by her husband beyond measure. See yourself that way. 
Two, we do marriage this way to worship well, like I said earlier. This is the foundation of society, culture, the church, and the next generation. This is exactly why Peter says, if a man doesn't love his wife well, his prayers are in danger of being hindered. And the final point, we do all this to make the name of Jesus and the power of the gospel known to the world around us. Almost every passage where Paul and Peter talk about husbands and wives is captured in a larger context that goes like this. Likewise, likewise, likewise. Right? Obey every earthly authority to make Jesus known. Likewise, slaves obey your husbands. <laughs> slaves obey. <laughs> I just ruined the entire message. <laughs> slaves obey your, ma- your masters to prove who Jesus is. Likewise, children obey your parents because that's good in the Lord. Likewise, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives. So the world may see and know that there is something different, powerful, beautiful, and real about the redemption of Jesus Christ. So at the end of all of this, there's so much more to say. And so I will simply echo Paul's words at the end of this section. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Keep pursuing this. It is a lifelong exercise in understanding God, understanding yourself, and understanding the work of the kingdom. We have prayer team in the back if you want to pray with someone. As we move into communion, we'll have two stations up here. Uh, We'll have wine and bread and crackers up here. There's juice and and bread, gluten-free crackers, and self-serve individual portions in the back if you care to do that. As you come up and you take communion, remember this. Remember what I said last week about the cup of betrothal and the God that loves you beyond measure, right? To to take the bread and, and watch Jesus give it to you and say, this is my body broken for you in sacrifice because I love you that much. This is, my, this is the wine of betrothal from you to me so that we can be one in a way that is unique in creation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the beauty reflected in all of this. Thank you for the, the ministry to the world that is reflected when husbands and wives and men and women in general take up the charge and the call to reflect you in this way. Jesus, we love you. We glorify you. I prayed that, Holy Spirit, that you take us forward from this place. Remind us every day how worth it it is to do the work to reflect you better. That it's not a burden of discipline, but it is a joy and where you meet us, and that you make our lives new and more beautiful. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks for hanging in there.